much as that <laughs> but I, I have I have multiple babies' mothers. There you go. What else? What other stereotype can we throw in there for Daniel so he's prepared for the show he's coming on to? Twenty-seven baby mothers. Look, I'm not sure if all of them are mine. Playing Just lotto. The ones that kind of look like me. <laughs> the ones where it's a little questionable. If the hair is too nappy, I ain't the pappy. Oh, wow. Good morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to the viewing audience across the pond. I'm Jason Miles, your host for another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Quickly, if you're new to the channel, please like, subscribe, and if you're enjoying what you see, make sure to hit the notification bell as we're constantly adding new episodes and doing cross streams with other channels. White Guy Wednesday was added just recently. We're going to be doing more of these episodes with Gene Bajlan and Deep State Cuba, and possibly Derek Varn. Thank you guys for tuning in. to the. I don't know if all of the White Guy Wednesday streams will be three hours long, but we'll be doing more White Guy Wednesday. We'll probably change the name to be a little less offensive, but the best comment I saw when I was watching it on the live chat was that uh, only during Black History Month would this channel have a White Guy Wednesday. So, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Okay, stop laughing. <laughs> now, if you enjoy what you're seeing here, we appreciate your support through Patreon, where you get access to the Champagne Room, access to Pascal Robert's Mau Mau Hour, the call-in segment, where you can call in and question or comment during his mow mowing and you also get access to the movie night but if you don't want to make the yearly or monthly commitment you can show your appreciation for what we do here on tir with tir merch and who better to explain said merchandise than the faceless voice of reason show producer extraordinaire m Toussaint? hello hello i do <clears throat> A frog in my throat. I do have a, a face. I do. Uh, here 
we've got an Anglo pessimism t-shirt oh. for your pessimistic Anglos. <laughs> we have, we have a this is revolution mouse pad. Here we got another mouse oh, pad with and a mug. With, uh, Pascal smiling face. I see someone saying we should tr- change White Guy Wednesday to White Devil Wednesday or Cracker Talk, the Wednesday edition. Cracker Talk. <laughs> oh no, that's banned on Twitch. You can't say Cracker. No, Hassan got in trouble for it. Saying Cracker. Yep. Word. What white person? Like, hold on for a second. I, I need mm-hmm. I need the white people watching and look. It's a left podcast. I know there's a lot of you watching. <laughs> Stop <laughs> laughter. God, we got to get through this. Um, what white person has ever heard a black or just anyone call them a cracker? Because it's also a term that white people use against each other. If you've ever been in certain parts of the South, and it's fucked up their day. Like, I've never met a white person that somebody was like, man, fuck you, cracker. And they just just like, oh, they go home and they like, they look at their child and they like, whatever happens in your life, son, you are more than a cracker. Don't let them <laughs> tell you that all you are is a cracker. Like, I, I don't believe that a white person gives a shit. Again, maybe, maybe in the deep south, and you know, somebody with status looked at somebody in a lower status and called them. Um, I know coon ass in Louisiana could be very offensive. Um, hillbilly can be offensive. Um, but I can't imagine someone just, you know, cracker, and then it just fucks up that white person's day to the point where they're like, I need this word banned. I thought you were going to say, I need mental health day. (laughs) (laughs) Like, can you imagine going to work and the white person is like, I need a mental health day. Someone, the two black people called me cracker at the store and I don't know what to do. My Prius is in the shop. I just, fuck, I don't know. Is that, is that a real thing? (laughs) Someone said your white guy voice is kind of Harrison Ford. Is because I've been quiet all day living alone. So this is the first time I'm speaking and it's all cracky. There we go. But, but uh I don't believe that calling a white person uh cracker would fuck up their day. Huh. Like if somebody called you a nigger, would that fuck up your day? Like your day might be fucked up for a couple hours, but you're gonna live. Mm-hmm. Um but Cracker? I don't know. Let's bring in the number one uh, Cracker hater of all time. Kevin Powell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, tattooed on this gentleman's arm is uh, race plus power equals racism. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome my homie, my dog, the man of the Mau Mau hour. And he is not a hater of crackers. Pascal Robert. <laughs> Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Peace and greetings, M2 Sun. 
What's up with the N-word, the C-word, making me a C-hater? <laughs> Dude. Also known as a chater. A chater? <laughs> oh, the studio you, audience likes that because that's funny. I've never heard of chater, but uh, I think we need to make chater a thing. Are you intentionally mm-hmm. trying to demonetize this video when we're barely into the stream so far? Dude, whatever video we do, we could do a video about bunny rabbits and change the theme to to the good times theme, and we would still get demonetized. Just so you people know, the shows don't get taken down from YouTube, but they don't allow um, certain ads to run on a lot of these shows. So we've actually, as the show has gotten larger, we've taken a massive YouTube hit. So uh, any super chats you want to throw our way, we would really greatly appreciate because every time we go on air, uh, we get a demonetization email. They're treating us like crackers. Speaking of crackers, he will no longer be a cracker in the next census. Um, He (laughs) is everyone's favorite (laughs) history professor at Missouri State. He's holding it down in the Midwest for TIR. Mean Jean Bajlan. Greetings, everybody. Uh, good to see you, Jason. Good to see you, Pascal. And good to hear your luxurious New York voice, M2 Tucson. Uh, Thank you. Whenever you guys talk about crackers, I think of, there's a show, I think of a television show in Britain called Cracker Jack, hosted by these two people. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute wait a minute show that again show that again cracker jack okay so for those that are going to listen to the show on the audio only jean bajlan is showing us two of the happiest whitest people most british people known to man and if i was to ever think of crackers i would think of these people <laughs> oh you think so they i mean one of them is, you know, one of them. One of them is a a lady dressed up as a man, as a child. Is that what that is? Yeah, that's uh, it's uh, Nicola Sturgeon, Prime Minister of Scotland. <laughs> Take a look. There she is. That's what she's planning to do after she retires as the premier of our premier autonomous region in the United Kingdom. There you go, Cracker Jack. We had a show called Cracker Jack, and I believe you got put in the gunk tank. And I discovered upon coming to America that you have a wonderful, delightful cuisine called the Cracker Jack, which is a it's a, a type of stale popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> Carmel covered popcorn. Yes. Um Cracker Jack is also what it's called when Pascal was dancing with a white girl in the house clubs. Oh my god. <laughs> Where are you why why are you making all of this uh creating all these scenarios? By the way, a better word than cracker is always peckerwood or ofe. Okay, peckerwood actually sounds offensive. It like, does you know, words that you say and it's like, okay, now we gotta fight. <laughs> it's the consonants. I think it's the I consonants. Think, I think peckerwood is a is is a much more effective racial slur for the uh, degenerated gene pool 
of white people in the United States. <laughs> like, I feel like if, uh, like if our guest was walking down the street and somebody was like, look at that crack ass cracker. He'd be like, oh, children, <laughs> that's silly, man. <laughs> but if somebody said, fuck you, Pekka Wood, he'd be like, uh, uh, honey, hold the kids. Well, let's ask our guest how he would react the, the, to... Uh... The rule book says, uh, I got to fuck this guy. <laughs> the first question for our guest is going to be, how would you react to being called a Pekka <laughs> The P word. The P, P word. word. I want to, you know, what? I'm bringing our guests in a little early because we do this thing where we do a pre-story before the actual show, and uh, I do think this is a, is an interesting conversation, and I would love to get uh, soon to be the only white person on the screen because Jean Bajlan now is going to be a double person of color. Please welcome be- philosopher and professor at George Washington and Marymount University, Daniel Tut. Got that clap. But, uh, How do you feel about Pekka Woods? Uh, this is a 1950s thing. I haven't heard of the podcast <laughs> for years. Uh, how would I feel from... I mean, I live in a predominantly black neighborhood, so um, I get it all the time, man. All the time. Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> all the time. Don't you get Where it? do you oh, live in the dude? good times neighborhood? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always trying to stop James from getting that pool. What actually is what does it come from? Pecker Wood. What is that about? Does anybody know I, that it's a it's like a southern term? Huh? Uh I don't know the origins of Pecker Wood. I know it was a term that a friend of mine used to use. He was from Tennessee. And he was all his terminology for the alabaster folk in the south was always Peckerwood. And uh I was like, is Pecker Wood like an inverse of Woodpecker? I mean, like, is that some kind of... Damn, I, yeah. I never really word, understood. The Pecker Wood originated as an African-American slang term for Woodpecker in the 1800s, but by the early 1900s began to be applied as a racial epithet against white people with the meaning similar to white trash. Maybe it's because oh. a Woodpecker has a red neck. Ah, I see. Interesting. Ah, well, that, that might have that might actually. I mean, I don't. I don't really have a problem with it, honestly. I mean, I mean, I do. It's stupid, but whatever. So, so Daniel, Daniel, moving on to much crack. more serious topics, Jason. Get get this under control. <laughs> you guys, crack, I do have one question though. When you walk around in your black neighborhood, do you ever have people randomly singing "Fire, Fire, Gentrifier, Fire, Fire"? <laughs> <laughs> What, what ghetto chance did you have in New York? <laughs> I'm, let me tell you. Let me tell you why I brought that up. I saw a video during like the uh, George Floyd uh, rebellion riots, whatever term you want to use, mm-hmm. where there was a protest in like Brooklyn, and there was a bunch of Black Lives Matter activists, mm-hmm. and they were walking around in Brooklyn. It was actually kind of comical, and they were screaming, "Fire! Fire! Gentrifier! Fire! Fire! Gentrifier!" Black people used to live here. Black people used to live here. Fire! fire. And I was like, "This is the most milk toast ass protest mm. I've ever seen in my life." This is like, Jesus Christ. That's well, that's you know, if you if you if you want to talk about the most milk toast thing, Jason, you know, you you obviously. 
And I think this is very on point with the discussion we want to have right now. Mm -hmm. Send you in the private chat a, a little video you might want to share with people uh, to remind us about uh, both gentrifiers and also some interesting oh. fashion decisions. Well, that's uh, well, that that goes into what we're talking about now. Um, can you guys hear me? Yep. 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 Okay. Um, Tucson, if someone puts a video up like that, I, I'm having issues playing it because my computer is so slow that it goes one or the other. <laughs> no. Play the video one or the other. Um, but I did want to talk about this, uh, Daniel. Uh, I don't know if you saw this well, the, in the, the, new, the new DEI fiasco. Yes. Yes, yes uh, I'm sure many saw the news that American Friends Service Committee, a Quaker institution, had a faker amongst its ranks. And not just a fake Quaker, but a woman pretending to be an amalgamation of ethnicities, Latina, South Asian, and Arab. And this wasn't a simple rank and file member. Oh, no. This was the Chief Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Officer. From an article in The Intercept, Raquel Avita Saraswati a Muslim activist who for years has encouraged people to believe that she is a woman of color, including Latina as well as of uh, South Asian Arab descent, is the AFSC's chief equity, inclusion, and culture officer, a senior position that gives her access to the files of dozens of the organization's staff and volunteers. But Sarah Swati, who was born Rachel Elizabeth Seidel, is not a person of color, according to her mother, Carol Perone. I call her Rachel, Perone told The Intercept when reached by telephone. I don't know why she's doing what she's doing. Sarah Sawadi, her mother added, is of British, German, and Italian descent, not Latina, South Asian, or Arab. I'm as white as the driven snow, and so is she, added Perone, who also shared with The Intercept photos of Sarah Sawadi as a child in the photos which the mother asked not to be published. Sarah Sawadi's complexion is significantly lighter than the bronze looked in more recent photographs, Brown also shared with the Intercept her Ancestry.com profile <laughs> and a photo of Sarah Swati's biological father was deceased. Another relative who asked not to be identified confirmed that Sarah Swati is white. What do y'all have to say about this? I have been talking about the futility of a left that retreats to the battlefield of identity for moral victories over fighting for substantive change. If the work that Raquel or Rachel is doing is good, does it matter that she faked her identity? Also, what does that say if your racial validity is needed to perform in these roles? Well, I think it's Jason. interesting that she faked three. Oh, Jason's out. Oh, well, Sarah, I was talking to Sarah about this this morning, and she made the observation. It's like it's not only that they're faking their ethnicity, but they like assume leadership positions within these uh, organizations. You know, mm -hmm. Rachel Doazol. And then we had Jessica Krug, my favorite, Jessica La Bombalera, faking. And usually they have like, they fake a kind of very elaborate, you know, ethnic story as well. Uh, and, you know, if you ask me, you know, there are at least within certain institutions in the United States, particularly those institutions in which liberal and progressive liberal culture is dominant, there is an incentive for these people to do this kind of thing, right? Because if you read on in that Intercept article, you know, they talk to the guy who hired her and he's like, oh, well, she ticked all the boxes. Mm. She was she was a lesbian, Muslim, 
etc etc now it's a pretty perverse incentive system that is creating this thing you know like we talk about race grifters uh you know this is a an example of how this race grift is expanding you know as i i have a i have a poll on twitter who are the greatest race grifters out there is it white women in blackface or high caste hindus coming to the united white states women saying native american i think is yeah. way bigger than white women saying they're black because that's easier that's, that's an easier pull that's true so I've we seen, have uh, <clears throat> i've seen the white woman native american uh scenario i've seen someone get into graduate school using that particular configuration uh as well uh the question is right what exactly can we use i mean number one do we believe that there should be some kind of repercussion for people mm -hmm. doing these things right and number two is you know is there a ground for a political response here i mean like you can you can you legally stop someone from saying that they're quote unquote a different ethnicity than they are uh, i believe we call that transracial transracial you know keep up with the terminology transracial trans ethnic transracial you know you know i don't think you can necessarily preclude someone from doing that my thoughts on this is that okay if you want to believe that you are white or latino you can believe it you want to say it but when you start claiming professional or occupational goods and services distributing positions based on a fraudulent identity, at least I would say is unethical. Yeah, but I mean, the same thing happens with class too, right? So, I mean, it happens, uh, I, th I think a few things should be said. One is, I wouldn't say the Dolezal effect is necessarily, um, I think it, it also could be seen as a path pathological thing, because in reality, we every time it happens, we know about it. So there is certain pathologization, which of course, as Gene said, is encouraged by the bottom line of how these liberal institutions are stratifying the, the their conception of identity in relationship to oppression. Like I once was at Berkeley, University of Berkeley, giving a talk. And I didn't know that the professor before me uh, renounced his white privilege because I just wasn't in the room. <laughs> so when I got up to talk, I didn't do that. And then the most interesting thing happened, tragic maybe, it's a black girl in the audience, she started to cry. Wow. Because I didn't renounce my white privilege. Are you fucking with us? No, 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 it's okay. I mean, but listen, listen. And then I learned later that she recently had a um, death in the family. Mm -hmm. So my act of doing that triggered an emotional response for her mm -hmm. in the way that uh, I think it was her mother or something like this, mm -hmm. it, 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 it set off a cascade of emotions for her, right? So mm -hmm. what's interesting about this whole dynamic is the way it's an emotional capitalism. It's an emotional investment into these identities that goes deep. So let's take a step back and not trivialize it too much because there's something about it which is which is speaking to a reality i mean i would have you know i don't i don't want to say that they're all phonies or we should make fun <laughs> of them no i think that the dolly's all thing is pathological she needs to have therapy this other person needs to have some you know there needs to be some intervention 
I mean that sincerely. The, the, the other question that Pascal raises around how these institutions conceive of power, conceive mm -hmm. of oppression, that's a whole other thing we can talk about. That's a philosophical issue. But the emotional, the affective thing is so, I don't know, interesting to me. I mean, back to what you said about someone, you know, being triggered because they had a passing in the family. That almost feels like you're part of a culture of trauma where everything is PTSD and you need to be treated like a special flower. Um it's insane to say you denounce your white privilege like that means anything. That's the equivalent of a land acknowledgement. Shit doesn't mean anything. It's extremely yeah. performative. So well, if you need a performative act for you not to cry, like I don't care if your family member passed away. I probably wouldn't. That, I, they're very that's lucky. The world you view, that that's the worldview of the professional managerial class is, that, is to personalize injustice so it's not a surprise these things are happening it should not be seen as some aberration it's a natural outcome of how these institutions are constructed and how they are see themselves well let, let me just jump in on, on this point so i think uh you know a, a lot of this is kind of like a, a almost like a hysterical neurosis of of the middle class i don't think you know, poor and working class people would necessarily be super triggered by, uh, by you know, someone not denouncing their white privilege. This seems something that is particularly, um, you know, encouraged, uh, as we said, by this culture that is developing within these liberal institutions and within the uh, professional managerial uh, elites within these institutions. And it becomes a kind of, uh, inversion of white supremacy because at the end of the day denouncing your white privilege or a landed non-acknowledgement is just the inversion of the logic of uh of white supremacy and white supremacy ideology mm. it's like land acknowledgements are basically uh an affirmation of blood and soil nationalism yeah and what and discourse on white privilege is a concretization and rec uh, an imposition of a white identity on uh, on white people as like yeah. one of the biggest mistakes of, of of you know the social justice movement if it's a mistake or not it's like i don't know getting white people to think about being white people all the time doesn't seem like a very like good idea it doesn't seem like it's going to end yeah well. i mean i think that's true gene i think the other thing to state here is that we should not and this is something to be dealt with carefully there is an erasure of the question, the question of social, <clears throat> social suffering at play here, which uh, requires a delicate conversation to be had. Because like, if we take my little, little example, it just so happens that I had a family member die of what we now in social science categorize as a death of despair, which I would not, in my analysis of this family member's death, I would assign it to a class decomposition fact. So the fact that the Berkeley liberals didn't allow me to talk to this individual, who also probably had a death of despair, I don't know the full details, mm -hmm. is a tragic misstep about a class solidarity that could have been had. But mm -hmm. the middle class ideology didn't allow it. That really bothered me. 
You know what I'm saying? Because if I would have known that, and this is why it's a certain issue of courage, because you have to sort of speak out. You have to speak out against this notion because people are dying, mm -hmm. irrespective of race in some sense. Mm -hmm. These trends, as you saw with Adolf Reed, uh, what was it, two nights ago? Mm -hmm. They're intensifying on class basis. So you got to pierce through this middle class edifice in some way. It's not easy to do. Um, it's not easy to do. And speaking of emotional capitalism, to pierce through it puts you in emotional capitalism because you got to face this reality because they're they have a super ego on their side, right? Like this, that framework of understanding power, society, the ball is in their court. It's not in our court. They have the power, or they're they're aligned with the power. Brother Robert, okay. do you have something you'd like to add? I mean, I, I think one of the main reasons why they align with the power is that they are they are higher tiered functionaries of capital. I mean, you know, the professional managerial class are not what we would call the classical bourgeoisie. I think the the actual kind of Marxist parlance we would have for them would be the petit bourgeois. In that they are they are not owners of the means of production per se or of capital per se, but they are high skilled professionals that facilitate the flow of capital in a way in that the distribution of resources does not go downward, but the diversity of inclusion of identity is maximized. So you become, you start to have a more multicultural tip of the pyramid while the blood drips down to the bottom for everybody. And where, where I agree with the, uh, uh, Professor Tutt is that there's definitely an agenda with what is deemed to be sensitive or what is deemed to be appropriate speak or inappropriate speak, what can be said or what can't be said. And there's a direct correlation of what can and can't be said with not only political agendas, but also subsidizing what can what will be subsidized what foundation you will get to be able to pay for uh dictating the norms of your quote-unquote oppressed group and it's also intentionally counter solidaristic it precludes the capacity of people who are on the socioeconomic margins divorced from various class identities to be able to unify and challenge these professional managerial class folks and their uh, ruling class paymasters because everyone is, you know, navel gazing their suffering based on their identity, as opposed to saying, well, there, there are people at the top and there are people at the bottom, and we got to get the people at the top. Now, this is a picture of uh, Rachel Seidel slash Raquel Saraswati. Um, she did the skin tanning thing um, to seem a little darker. Uh, did you want to say something about this, Jean? Uh, I mean, like, she has some wonderful eyeshadow on. Uh, <laughs> and, and you know, one of the things I've noticed about, I mean, about this... Uh, uh, 
European ladies, women of European descent, who dress up in the garb of quote unquote people of color is that they often do it in a very character, uh, like a caricature of what mm-hmm. it is. Like they, it's sort of like a, an embrace of a racist caricature of what they perceive those people to see with Jessica Krug. There was an absolutely ridiculous video of her, like going like, oh, my name is a sassy Jessica Bombalera. You gentrify her. It's like, you was know, she Italian? Like, Cause she sounds like one of the I can't, I can't, <laughs> I'm a Super Mario. And she, uh, <laughs> it's me, Mario. <laughs> but she's got she's got like hoop earrings on, right? You know, like hoop earring, like every single you know stereotype. MT, can you can you pull the, can you play the video for us, MT, please? Oh, I don't know how to do that. I'll Let's do that do. for you guys. Jane oh, had it. Goodness. Okay, I, I can. You I can are find killing it. me, Toussaint. You've never but taught yeah, me. I mean, we, uh, I mean, it's 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 you have like a whole. Uh, it's it's very interesting that there is a kind of stereotype. They almost, in order to prove their authentic authenticity, uh, they have to like perform to this uh, bizarre stereotype of uh, of. Um, there we go. I'm gonna I'm gonna put this up for, for people to watch. Uh, share. Okay, is it up now? Hold on. Uh, see, yeah, I see it. Do I have yeah, to open see it? it? I have to. Open yeah, it. Here we go. yeah. Open it up. So this is Jessica LaBombalera. In El Barrio, East Harlem. Uh, you probably know this neighborhood because the Hosanna Melissa Mark Viverito, who used to be the speaker of your city council, sold my fucking neighborhood to developers and gentrifiers. So I got a couple of things to say. And when y'all come on and tell me my time stops, fuck out of here. It's been seven hours. Not only did I have to listen to these cops, and not just the cops, but to be honest with y'all, city council members, you posing like you opposing them for your sound bites, for your social media, for your re-election campaigns. Fuck out of here. You've been supporting the cops in the pandemic when the MTA was strapped and you supported putting more cops on the MTA. Fuck out of here. We know where you're coming from and we know what these little photo opportunity bullshits are. Uh, I also want to call out all these white New Yorkers who waited four hours with us to be able to speak and then did not yield their time to black and brown indigenous New Yorkers who thought that their sense of, I thought cops was here to protect us, but I guess they're not. Boy, you think that this sort of like shock and empathy thing is the move. Okay, so a couple of things. You was talking about, Chair, you was talking about moving against the gang database. What's up with that? Because last I checked, that's still operating. Last I checked, that's still up. You talk about us to show up, been shown up in all these neighborhood council meetings, trying to fight gentrification, ain't nothing changed. And then real quick, I wanna talk about some of my experiences in the Bronx um, on Thursday. So, you know, y'all heard from a few people who were there and thank you much power to all my siblings who were standing up, my black and brown siblings who were standing. Um, okay, I can't take, I can't, I can't take that much. Take- <laughs> Do professors curse that much? I mean, I don't know. Not a, I don't know. Uh, only if I'm teaching the class. That woman is from Kansas City, right? Oh, unbelievable! She she's should really Ka- know barbecue well. She, yeah, she's from Kansas City. Uh, but like, you see what I mean? It's like a, it's like she's doing like a racial stereotype, and that's a bad yeah. accent. Let, let, it let, is. Let me let me it's say a bad New York like, accent too. This is not like let's. There's there's a there's a dimension here which is uh, not reducible only to the di dei moment. Mm-hmm. When I, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and it was a, um, you know, there was like a black side of Portland town, 
I don't believe you. My city more than a million times. integrated not many people. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, it was more than there is now. That's for sure. Um, that's for sure. Um, but uh, so what ended up happening is white kids who were uh, on the margins and wanted to be cool adopted the aesthetic and the slang of black life at the time, right? Which was more more than just listening to Biggie and Tupac and hip hop. It was much more than that. It was like a whole identity. So this is something that's been around for a while. It's just at this moment, after Trump and many other factors, it's become hyper, hyper, hyper politicized. And, and now the institutions that are supposed to be at the vanguard of social justice have adopted adopted this in ways which again i do want to say that i think a lot of it has borderline pathological dimensions i mean most people in the nonprofit space that are white have internalized these mm -hmm. frameworks and worldviews mm -hmm. they're not trying to imitate the oppressed poc that they stand for most of them have good intentions right yeah they they need to be you know, I think we should we should talk about the way in which we can analyze these things with a clear head, a more rational approach and get out. Like Pascal said, I think it's a very good point of the fetishization of suffering. But at the same time, recognize that the refusal of suffering as born from class struggle is also very much a constitutive part of their worldview, which historically, as somebody said in the chat, has been a constitutive part of the worldview of bourgeoisie as such even before all of this hyper postmodern identity politics stuff that's a constitutive part of of bourgeois class relations and class power and so there's nothing well, new about that i feel you know well, I would, I uh, go ahead pascal go ahead sorry the addition i just wanted to make is that in terms of the uh identity appropriation if you will of uh white to black people or brown people, that goes back to the beatnik era of the 50s. It's absolutely not new. You're correct about that. But I think the distinction can be made when you are finding people in particularly narrow professional sectors, NGO-affiliated sectors, university-related sectors, uh, or... or, or uh, racial kind of uh, social justice organizations. There's a direct correlation between the ideologies of those spheres. I don't think it's an accident An accident that Rachel Dolezal was actually a university adjunct professor who actually worked in civil rights as well. And with this woman, yeah, she went to Howard undergrad, grad for grad school, I think. And you have Jessica Bombardera, who was actually a full Professor, I don't know if she was tenured, but she was an actual. She was, she was a te tenure track professor, and she had a position that was specifically earmarked for a minority. Mm. Right, mm. right. So the point I would make is that the distinction I would make between white beatniks who like to pretend that they were Dizzy Gillespie smoking weed, and. <laughs> You know, the white kid who grew up in Jamaica, Jamaica, Queens, after it becomes a black neighborhood and wants to be a 5% member of the Nation of Islam, is that they're not 
there's no material benefit to them. The class that we're seeing right now, this is hustling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a very important point. Let me give you a parallel. Like in Turkey and Iran, you know, um, there was a fashion amongst left-wing intellectuals. And I was talking to an Iranian friend of mine. Uh, he was saying like, oh, this current sort of re revolutionary moment in uh, Iran, there is uh, there are like loads of Persian left-wing people who are now saying, oh, but, you know, actually my grandmother was Kurdish and things like that. There is a kind of fashion thing appropriating like a connection to the oppressed people. But I think what Pascal is highlighting is that there is a quantity, there's a qualitative difference between that kind of trying to be avant-garde and fashionable mm -hmm. and appropriating the idea and then the actual material race hustle that's uh, taking place today. There's, so I agree. There is an overlap, there is an overlap though, because if sure. you read Norman Mailer's uh, beatnik uh, uh, novel called The White Negro, mm -hmm. uh, he makes an argument that's very weird, strange. He says uh, in the Freudian conception of the id, that primal part of the psyche that taps into the kind of um, deep unconscious wishes and things of this nature. Uh, uh, if, if you're a bohemian white and you, you, you perform a, a kind of solidarity with blacks, they have a more close connection to the id than whites do. So it's a liberatory theory in that he presents in the white Negro from a psychoanalytic lens. And um, that's why the Bohemians were, were for the lumpen proletariat, because being with those, that class of people would give you psychic liberation huh? to be on the margins like that. Now, someone like Christopher Lash uh, is, is going to tear that argument apart from a psychoanalytic standpoint. It deserves it's, to be. It's deeply problematic. But that was actually the prehistory of what we're at now. Because that presupposition, even though it didn't have a profit motive, the current structure still has that fetish structure, still has that theory of liberation implicit in it. So, you know, I think a lot more research should go into this. There is a, there's, a not, there's another political point I kind of wanted to, to bring into the conversation is the role of identity politics in the broad historical uh, struggle for democracy. And, and what I'm thinking, you know, uh, what, what comes to my mind is is uh, Daniel Zamblatt's Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy, in which he points out that uh, reactionary forces in society, obviously during the early phases of the Enlightenment and the bourgeois revolution were like opposed to democracy, right? You know, they did that, that they had like a very materialist view of society because they were like, well, if everybody votes, then they're just going to vote to abolish property and a vote if you look at the founding fathers and all that kind of thing. But identity politics, whether it was like Catholic conservatism, ethnic solidarity, or what have you, became the vehicle through which conservative forces in society could buy in to the existence of popular representative uh, democracy. And I think this is like a meta point we have to understand is that at its core, right, at its core, you, not that, you know, this is not to uh, ignore the question of ethno-national oppression or, or those kind of things, but at its core, identity politics is a right-wing political project, mm. or it will inevitably tend towards a right-wing political project. As Pascal will tell you, and maybe you disagree with Ms. Pascal, is like, yes, 
you have a concrete material movement for black liberation. But over time, it devolves into neoliberalism or just reactionary black nationalism. And so like identity, same with something like anti-imperialism and decolonization. What does decolonization look like? In the early phases, it's an emancipatory class-based project, but it degenerates into like the Taliban and the Iranian revolution, which are right-wing forces. I would not say that decolonization in and of itself has to actually be, uh, has to be rendered to that position. I think that decolonization fails because decolonization cannot exist in a vacuum and it mm -hmm. requires external support. And when external support disappears, it will, it will fail. I think that where I do agree with you, though, is that the romanticism of decolonization being some kind of pure, uh, ever-present, the revolution that will exist forever, mm -hmm. is nonsensical when you're dealing with the nation state and you realize that at some point there will be hierarchy that will, that will be developing. Whether it's a bourgeoisie or not, some hierarchy will start to develop. And how you preclude that hierarchy from creating a class that is absconding resources and capital more so than the masses of the proletariat has yet to be seen. So I don't disagree with your analysis that decolonization has failed in the post-colonial era, but I would argue that that has a lot to do with the fact that there's no support structure to maintain that kind of, those kind of state apparatuses, those states apparatuses after, after they develop. Yeah. Let me just let me just then kind of amend what I'm saying uh, slightly just to clarify what I mean. Uh, my point is not that decolonization or questions of ethno-national liberation like the black struggle, are, you know, th those are democratic struggles, right? Those are struggles to emancipate people from like uh, racial and uh, political hierarchies that are oppressive. No doubt that they are legitimate struggles. My point is, if those become if those struggles become disconnected from a critique of class and a, a class question, they will inevitably become uh, 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 like right wing struggles. What I mean here is like you know people talk about class bourgeois is a better word than right wing. Yeah, okay, bourgeois uh, if you if if you prefer, and ultimately these struggles, uh, uh, many of this discourse will lead us towards um, like a rejection of universalism. You know, it'll be a rejection of a universalism, which. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I think this is fascinating. I had one question, though. Why did Elizabeth Warren, the candidate of the PMC, get mm -hmm. off the hook for posing as a Native American? Mm -hmm. Why did they not hold her accountable for that? Does anybody have a theory as to why she did a 23 in me? Remember that? Oh, yeah, she did. She, did a 23 she, she was also being attacked by Trump actively. Yeah. Well, and, uh, I think a lot of Trump, a lot of people Trump wouldn't give the satisfaction. Trump's right. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's, it's it's not and it's not like it's it's not like these uh, standards are it's ever, a double standard. So, I mean, look at look at the right wing, right? Look at right wing. Look at right wing politics, right? Mm -hmm. Like. You know, you know, they go on all about trans people and trans story time. And it's like, look, if you send your sending your kids to trans story time is probably the safest thing that you could do. Sending them to youth pastors, that's like they're gonna get <laughs> they're getting fucked. They're, they're getting fucked, right? Exactly. Kids getting you know? fucked. But you know, the 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 there isn't, you know, 
within right wing politics, there is no there no there's no uh, standard way that people are held accountable. Why would we expect that uh, progressive wings of politics? Because at the end of the day, progressive and conservative liberalism are just alternative forms of morality and mm -hmm. moral codes to discipline people. Like mm -hmm. whether you're disciplining them in through Jesus Christ and a kind of hypocritical religious hierarchy or disciplining them through like the the uh, diversity, equity and inclusion uh, wrong think codes. It's the same project, a project of discipline. And I mean, like, what are these things? What are, What is the purpose of these things? It is to provide discipline on, on, on people and uniformity and to purge those who are not going to play by the game. Elizabeth Warren won't get purged because she's playing the game. And they will forgive yeah. her. And I think you're right about like the yeah. Trump firewall. So I think yeah. these these things are never, never, ever going to be implemented in a fair way. Some people are going to get a pass. Uh, so some people will right. like. Look, well, what look, happens? What happens when these things are backed up though by quote unquote black radicals? Like there was a book in the '60s that came out written by a white man called "The Student Is Nigger." Do you guys remember that? And that book no. was distributed by the Black Panthers. Uh, in the 60s, I can hear Tucson typing away. Like, did he just say the student is? <laughs> is that real? <laughs> by is, Jerry is Farber. Book. Yeah. By yeah. Jerry Farber. By Jerry Farber, student is nigger, and um, a very fiery book, as you can imagine from that from that time period. Um, what then happens when, unlike uh, the Dolazels, Bombaleras, and this lady right here, where you don't have to pretend you're another ethnicity, you just um, use rhetoric fiery rhetoric and then the radical uh class of color gets behind this fiery rhetoric well i mean there's there's a whole political history of all kinds of you know pretty bad things trans happening as a consequence of having this quote-unquote radical rhetoric without any kind of substantive class-based class-based politics particularly if it's racially uh, racially narrow cast a perfect example of that is black power in that black power was something that presented itself as a quote-unquote radical call for black self-determination and black control of communities and all that stuff and one of the critiques of black power is that okay Black self-determination and black control of communities is great. What does it mean when the Urban League does it? Mm -hmm. Or the National Action, the National Action Network? Isn't that black self-determination? Isn't that black control of communities? What does it happen when the Ford Foundation is merging with the you know, with core, you know, the Congress on Racial Equality to, to, to finance it? Isn't that black self-determination? In other words, what happens is that when these terms are thrown out as a posturing of radicalism they become very very easy to undermine and and even there's a great video I mean, if we want to pull it up or, or not with uh richard nixon talking about black power mm, he literally it. says like there's certain aspects of black power we don't want the like that can be you know radical that can be you know kind of extreme but there are other aspects that we like where you know black people can have their own banks and they have their own shopping centers and they can have their own schools and they should and they will and that 
aspect of black power we like. So you literally have Richard Nixon arguing after in, after Jim Crow is over that, like, yeah, we should resegregate black people mm-hmm. and give them dominion and control of their spaces. As if that's not exactly what would be perfect for the politics of containment and capture. And one of the reasons why I agree with the analysis that when you say quote unquote black self-determination in a multicultural space like the United States, which is not like an African country, which black people are doing the self-determining? And who are the who are the ones that are doing the negotiating with the ruling class? Because it's not gonna be the, the, the proletariat that's gonna make that choice. It's gonna be the ruling class that's gonna decide who that broker is gonna be. You know? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know what that noise is. The police are coming. It's construction on my house. Oh, <clears throat> accelerationism. It's a, yes, it's, that's where you, you know what I was about, about to. The Jetsons. You need to talk about I, technology. Look, I'm I pivoting. thought we were supposed to talk about the Jetsons, y'all. Come on. Let's get <laughs> pivoting, I'm getting ready for the pivot. I know. I'm, I'm messing here. Messing with you. Accelerationism be loosely defined as a range. Marxist and reactionary ideas in critical and social theory that call for the drastic intensification of capitalist growth, technological change, infrastructure sabotage, and other social processes in order to destabilize existing systems and create radical social transformation, otherwise known as acceleration. There is a post-Marxist thought that because of the internal contradictions of capitalism and instabilities which jeopardize growth, its downfall could be brought forth by acceleration. But this, does this bring us to a Jetsons-like dystopia? Not the smiling family in the clouds, but living in the sky because of the uninhabitability of the dying earth? How many useless eaters were sacrificed for our futuristic life in the clouds? We've brought in philosopher and psychoanalyst, professor at George Washington and Marymount University, Daniel Tutt, to delve deeper into this quandary. Daniel, can you explain to us briefly what accelerationism is and why it became so popular after the Occupy movement and definitely in 2020, and then kind of died out? Was it just a passing fad in a low intention span moment, or did no one really see validity in the movement? Mm-hmm. Cool. Nice intro, man. That's really good. <laughs> no, really, that's really good. You, 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 uh, you did a nice job, man. Uh, you did your homework, Jay. Um, uh, well, you gave us homework. Yeah. Sorry about sure. that. No, uh, no, we appreciate you did the reading. All you did the reading. Everybody's making fun of my books. Sorry for that. You, you just like these books, yeah. Yeah. Well, you didn't read the Guardian article, did you? About like how. How, yeah, uh, I don't, I don't, yeah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> accelerationism, accelerationism, let's just say at the outset, is actually a healthy thing, in my view, for the left, because it's about the left talking about how to revolutionize capitalism. And you could say its, its origin really comes out of the Enlightenment and the kind of myth of Prometheus, which you even see in strains of socialism and Marxism. So it has an impetus of a certain utopian ideal, right? Which is how do we harness the um, 
starting an industrial revolution, even in the 1830s? How do we harness these forces for the liberation of, of uh, the working class and of humanity um, towards a more progressive, more egalitarian social order? So it's been around in germinal form for a long time. Um, it's important to note that it's more kind of contemporary neoliberal iteration starts with the French philosophers Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari in their anti-Oedipus series. But there is an important precursor because one of the things that Deleuze and Guattari did was they sought to sort of swap out Marx as the central philosopher of the left with Friedrich Nietzsche. And Friedrich Nietzsche has uh, many thoughts regarding an imminent critique of bourgeois, of the bourgeois class, but from the position of the right. So it's a quite, quite ironic because Nietzscheanism became highly appealing to bourgeois intellectuals because it provided a certain critique of bourgeois morality, of bourgeois decadence. And Nietzsche himself wrote about the importance of overcoming the contradictions of bourgeois society, of, of accelerating beyond the decadence uh, even the narcissism of, of bourgeois culture. Uh, Nietzsche, Nietzsche wanted to accelerate the conditions of capitalist brutality to, to, to land us in new wars. He thought that new wars would, would, would help tame the egalitarian um, sheepish kind of masses, right? Uh, so in that sense, his accelerationism mostly is an accelerationism of the right. Of course, if you fast forward to the 1990s, there's a kind of uh, neo-right-wing Nietzschean philosopher called Nick Land, who's big on Twitter. And a lot of young uh, students are drawn to Nick Land because he's quite edgy. And um, he, he studied cybernetics and he's interested in uh, strategies for intellectually conceptualizing, overcoming the limits of capitalism and more Recently, his thought has become straight out white supremacist. So in a sense, he's literally advocating for a future that would be the Jetsons, that would be the Jetsons, basically, which is a kind of white ethno state on Mars or sort of whatever. In that sense, he's kind of like Elon Musk, but he's like explicitly white uh, supremacist, which I don't want to over, overstate him as if he has a great influence. I don't think that he does. That's actually why... I wanted to name the show what happened to accelerationism because i don't think that land i don't think the people in power are listening to him at all i think he's a sideshow but more interestingly on the left we saw after occupy a flurry of thinkers talking about um fully automated luxury communism a lot of this is stemming from the uk in part because the socialist left in the UK is a little more intellectual than it is in the US. And by intellectual, all that I mean is that... Up their own asses. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> accelerationism is good because it's speculative. It's about how to put the brakes on capitalism, how to, how to, how to theorize revolution. Are we committed to revolution? What does revolution look like? That's what accelerationism is asking. In fact, there's a great debate between Bertolt Brecht and Walter Benjamin after the failure of the communist revolution in Germany, 1917, 1919, that started the kind of one of the lines of accelerationism. And 
Benjamin had the metaphor of putting the brake uh, on capitalism. And Brecht stands as a kind of great left-wing accelerationist against him. So in germinal cell, they also have. So this is a debate which recurs. So I, I don't want to have anybody watching think that accelerationism is somehow foolish or naive. There are naive aspects to it. For example, uh, in this uh, Saito, this guy who is the degrowth communist dude who's in Japan, he sold, I guess he sold half a million copies of his new book, Degrowth Communism. He is uh, cited Nick Srinasek, one of the left accelerationist people from the UK region, who was huge after 08 throughout the 2010s. Uh, he wrote Inventing the Future with Alex Williams. And Saito called them utopian socialists. Utopian socialists. So one way to think about left accelerationism is utopian socialism. And we know from Marx, utopian socialism is problematic. So what are some aspects of left accelerationism that might be that we might flag as problematic? The first is they believe in UBI. They think UBI is emancipatory, universal basic income. They, they are for full automation. They're for it. So there's that. The other thing that's possibly problematic, which we can discuss, is that you don't see them talking about building the consciousness amongst the people. They have a kind of adversarial relationship to what they call folk politics, a critique of populist politics, which I think is valid. But some people have raised, like Benjamin Noyce, has raised some criticism of left accelerationism precisely because it's not that interested in the careful work of building a working class solidarity coalition to gain power. That's why perhaps one critique you could put forward of them is that they failed in part because it remained a kind of uh, a PMC thing. I don't, I don't want to say that that's too strong, maybe. That's too strong um, because they have good intentions and there are comrades, et cetera, et cetera. And it's positive to be thinking about how to revolutionize capitalism. But I think that there's also some issues regarding a structural understanding of the way the capitalist economy works, especially the way automation works, um, as far as I've been researching. Like, for example, I'm reading Jason Smith's new book on automation called Smart Machines, highly recommended to everybody, where he basically shows that full automation is impossible because of wage slavery. And he shows that what he calls the servant economy grows in direct correlation to automation in one sector. You cannot have multi-sector full automation in capitalist in a capitalist society. So in that sense, you have to think of like, okay, well, you take over power and so on. You Bernie Sanders or Corbyn gets elected. Even that wouldn't, even, even if that happens, that doesn't mean that they're going to be able to do full automation because of the structural realities of how capitalism works. <clears throat> So I'm going on a big thing here, Jay, but um No, no, I'm 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 loving where this is going. Me? No, no, I'm I'm following you because I someone someone said something kind of funny in the chat that I I do think is valid to this conversation. They said, Isn't Charles Manson the OG accelerationist? Um, for those that don't know anything about Charles Manson, uh the reason why he remember he didn't kill anyone personally. He ordered violence. Um 
but uh, he wanted to kill the bourgeoisie, make it look like black people did it, which is why um, they wrote like fuck the pigs in blood all over the the Tate and LaBianca houses um, because he felt that um, by starting a race war, black people were physically superior and would win said race war. And then because he was smarter than black people, he would then be the leader um, of the so, yeah, so, black. So part of part of this notion of the Nietzschean origin of accelerationism is important to unpack because part of it has to do with the idea of what Lukács, the great Hungarian Marxist scholar who was actually a great critic of Nietzsche, said it produced on the left an indirect apologetics of capitalism. And many people have said in the complicated question regarding Nietzsche's relationship to fascism, that we have to understand it as a, as a Nietzschean only insofar as what Nietzsche's idea promoted, say for Mussolini, was not the notion that revolution at the level, at the site of product, production is possible. No. Nietzsche. Some have argued that Nietzsche's influence on thinkers like Mussolini produced the notion that what we need to do is overthrow the bourgeois class because of its mm -hmm. decadent morals and so mm -hmm. on. But, but what's the important thing there for the left? That doesn't change anything about the structure of capitalist social relations. That just swaps in a new, a new elite, a new mm -hmm. Ubermensch. You see, there's, a, there's an important distinction. So. Sometimes when the left adopts and flirts with that, I worry that we lose sight on the central question, which is how do we break from the wage slave relation of capitalism? How do we how do we forge beyond that? Do you, yeah. Daniel, do you think that there is something enticing about proto-fascist thought? Because uh, uh, Mussolini does come out of, of Marxist thought. Um, Jean Pascal, I, I'm sure you guys have something to say about this as well. Um, this is kind of one of those big brain. What questions. do you mean by enticing? What do you mean by enticing? Um, you, you know, replacing one for the other. I think there's an oversimplicity when we talk about changing social structures and systems. Um, I think there's a lot of hero worship that goes on in uh, the contemporary left um, that has replaced any sort of deep thinking about systems and how they might look differently. And it's more like, well, if this different person got to run said system, um, then everything would be fine. Gene, uh, you look like you have something you want to say. No, I just find I, I enjoy listening to Daniel because he has a very different uh, academic formation from me. Mm -hmm. So the way that he approaches this question is from a philosophical perspective, which I think is really, uh, you know, it provides like an angle I don't immediately think of. When I think about the popularization of, you know, fully automated luxury day communism, whatever it, uh, whatever it happened, you know, what, whatever iteration, and that's the only one of the the texts that I've read. I've read that one. I haven't read the uh, other one before, but um, it strikes me as coming to the fore at a particular historical moment in which climate crisis uh, is moving up the political agenda. Mm -hmm. and is be increasingly beginning to shape the debate that is taking place. And of course, we have various forms of uh, non-socialist politics uh, emerging out of this, which is, you know, the Green Movement, 
uh, anarcho-primitivism was a thing for a while, you know, all these kind of uh, anti-Promethean politics. And I see this as a kind of response. And why I don't think it is necessarily politically radical is ultimately, you know, someone like Aaron Bastani is, and, and, and again, I don't say this as an insult or like to throw shade, is a social democrat. His, his politics is uh, driven by a desire to uh, alleviate human suffering through the management of capitalism, through, mm. through, the, through the formation of a strong uh, social democratic uh, popular mm. uh, party, uh, which is, you know, like the old, the old uh, pre-1936 uh, third international line calling the social democrats social fascists. Uh, there is a kind of similarity in that type of politics in that is a politics of management of capitalism, right? And it's it's trying to take power away from that capitalist elite that dominates traditional liberal, uh, liberal states. It's not to say that, oh, fascism and social democracy are the same. I would much rather see a lot more social democracy. Than <laughs> <it>, old uh, <laughs> Mussolini Italian style fascism. Yeah. But I think I think uh I think this accelerationist discourse is an answer to a growing reactionary mm-hmm. e- ecological movement. And we are seeing we're seeing increasingly the political right seizing on uh, uh on this with the rise of eco-fascism. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and how you know, and how not only that, but uh, neoliberalism can seize upon uh, environmentalist discourse and use that to impose austerity as well. And I think this is a response to that particular context in the post, in the post two thousand and eight economic crisis. Here, it's a response to the bullshit of austerity and the fears about climate change. That's how I would take it, perhaps. And uh, so that's how I uh, I view this. It is the it's the ideology of a, a moment, and it's a kind of manifesto for um, you know a kind of uh, a social democratic alternative of management of capitalism that does not rely on austerity but provides plenty for all. P- Pascal, do you have something you'd like to add? Well, I mean, I think that you you made a very interesting point about the tendency of people who are starting from a framework of the left, mm-hmm. who after acquiring power. In a state of totalitarianism, move to hardcore right. I think I don't think that's necessarily required, and I also don't believe that authoritarian states are a necessary consequence of socialism at all. I actually I actually think there are many varied ways in which you can orchestrate a socialist economic paradigm in which workers own means of production that does not require that you have a dictatorial state. And I do obviously agree. With the with the Marxian axiom that um, utopian socialism is problematic. However, at the same time, I think that it behooves socialists in a internationally capitalist world to argue that they have a new vision of society. I'm not saying it should it has to be utopian, but I think that innately part of the socialist project in an international capitalist world is to produce a new vision of what society looks like. If we're just talking about trying to have a society in which the normative functioning of transactions of of capital and resources stay the same and we just have, quote-unquote, some social democracy and New Deal, I don't think we're we're going far enough. 
I've made I've made this statement on this show several times. I think yeah. that for us to have a true liberatory socialist project, mm-hmm. the whole nature of human understanding, the ideological superstructure has to be transformed. Completely. Well, like, like we were saying with you know the idea to to end prisons, you know we'd have to truly. <laughs> change the ideological superstructure. Right. Yeah, just you're saying I, we, we I abolish the police, abolish prisons. I mean, that's I mean that's a nice statement, but as Jason and I always say, why don't we abolish crime, abolish poverty, abolish fractured families, abolish violent social stimuli, abolish unhealthy food, abo- abolish all of the various intricacies that lead to the deformed human reality that creates these aberrations of mm-hmm. functioning society as, mm-hmm. as opposed to just getting to the Band-Aid and say, okay, abolish the police and abolish the police. Well, I means- mean, it's, it's, isn't that though? Because, you know, ultimately slogans like abolish the police, they come from a kind of liberal technocrat- technocratic, a radical liberal technocratic perspective where, you know, these people compartmentalize a problem and believe that they can resolve that uh, problem independently of radically re-altering the uh, relations of society. Yeah, it's it's simple. Just uh, abolish the police and just give people a house and then all the problems are fixed. I do want to go down this rabbit hole, though, of the Jetsons. And I find that extremely interesting because the Jetsons come to be before we have anyone landing on the moon. And in that race to the moon, you know, you have to keep the picture up, Gene. In, in, in that race to the moon, we are in this country uh, definitely imagining what the future is going to look like. Um, science fiction is, becomes real big um, in this moment because we're going to go to the great unknown. And in the Jetsons, uh, we're living amongst the clouds. Um, everything is automated. Food is no longer real. Uh, we have a sentient, sentient maids, yet George still has a job. There's still bosses. Let's unpack the Jetsons a little bit with uh, Daniel Tut. Daniel, tell us a little bit about the Jetsons. So one of the things interesting about the Jetsons is that in 1955, you see automation hit the Fordist capitalist era of the economy in a big, big way. And it comes out in the early 60s, very successful show. Then, of course, there's that whole Flintstones conspiracy, which we can talk about later, which is really interesting. But it poses a future society. I forget how many decades into the future, uh, which definitely has uh, some really, really, really weird racial politics going on because it's all white people in the Jetsons, which we also need to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, But George Jetson works two hours a week. Everybody is in a basic state of insane leisure, breadwinner structure of the family. So it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a mirror of the promise of the post-war Fordist family. Right. Uh, But even better. And the banter, the conversations of the characters is still complaining about work, even though they don't work. So in a sense, it is a realization of John Maynard Keynes's theory that in the future, we will reach within capitalism, 
um, a profound level of of leisure and a certain relationship to work, which is almost from the standpoint of the salaried bourgeoisie. So it's almost like everyone is salaried bourgeoisie and automation is handled fluidly by machines. Yeah. So in that sense, it is close to fully automated luxury capitalism, not communism. Well, then it becomes kind of hard to say what's the difference in the Jetsons, in a sense. Of course, then, uh, and I want to know what M. Toussaint thinks of this. Apparently, they created like a more recent version of the Jetsons, which doesn't have just white people, but it's, it's still darker. the same premise. Very it's way weird. darker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm almost like we should just abandon the whole friggin' project. But, but that's it, man. I mean, it's interesting. There's a lot of, lot, and then what's the Flintstones thing? The Flintstones is that. Bo- most uh, most the, the sort of imagination is that some nuclear catastrophe has occurred mm-hmm. and they've had to leave the earth so there's that dimension um but honestly i want to know what m Toussaint thinks because this was her idea by the way we Thank I'm, you for the, I'm, that the, I'm the geek that suggested accelerationism this was Thank supposed for to shouting be that on. out that this is m Toussaint's. uh this is her this show was on the jetsons so yes Thank what do you, you. think m Toussaint? That's so interesting. Initially, my idea was about ta- talking about the Jetsons and environmentalism, because obviously something happened to the Earth where they had to start living up higher up in the stratosphere. But, you know, that also involves, uh, you know, the white people and how, you know, there's no other races and that sort of thing. But I found your dimension of accelerationism and uh, the whole labor aspect to be very interesting. So let me ask you your your thoughts on this. The, hold on one second, here, okay. Um, this episode, uh, Rosie the Robot, first aired on September 23rd, 1962. Uh, the plot is between malfunctions and pressing too many buttons, Jane wants a robot made, but George can't afford it. And this is how they got Rosie. This is actually their first episode. Jane actually has a finger that is like crooked from pressing too many buttons. Mm. So she has button finger, the button finger syndrome. Mm. And that's why she wants a maid. So, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it reminds that says me, about labor. This is another idea they had, which is they would have a, a, a servant who has the consciousness of the mother. It's a very like Freudian Oedipus thing. The consciousness mm. of the mother implanted mm-hmm. in the servant it's really weird that you would want your mom to come clean up after you all the time um well that's what happens in the future jetsons that's what happens in the future that's right that's yeah exactly. well, the also one of the things you know to your point about the finger thing um if, if you guys have seen the movie uh nomad land it actually is based off of a, a non-fiction book where a woman actually went undercover in these spaces where a lot of elderly people were working and one of the places that she was in for I forget how many months was an Amazon uh, warehouse. I want to say in the Southwest and she encountered these people living in vans. So some of the people in the movie actually were people that she met in the book. And in the movie, one of the people working at Amazon, they kind of repaint Amazon very differently in the movie than than in the book, actually has a repetitive disease, a repetitive injury where her whole arm uh, doesn't 
doesn't work because of she was using it to to sh trigger the you know, scan the thing in the movie she's actually shown doing the task you know, i'm assuming with her other hand but uh i do find that interesting that we we are in this era of you know talking about things that sound overly simple like a finger injury mm -hmm. um, this woman can't use her finger because of the re repetitions i almost feel i almost feel i'm toussaint that the 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 imagination that goes into the storyline of relying on machines in the way that the jetsons did is no longer available to us today because neoliberalism has taken away our desire for leisure mm. why my my notion of socialism from an educative standpoint is to inculcate a love for leisure amongst the people i'm not to say that they don't have it but i think the material conditions of the fordist era and we can talk about how it was not racially distributed and all of that of course uh did possess a certain expectation of the breadwinner family which today if you advocate for the breadwinner family good luck you're not going to go mm -hmm. far right right but nonetheless there's it's the it's a contradiction of bourgeois capitalism that it gives you a little a uh, little bit of a, a kind of liberatory snack but it doesn't it doesn't doesn't distribute that equally at all so my sense is that if you remake the jetsons today uh, are people going to actually look at it in the same way they looked at it in the 60s when leisure was expected in a certain sense, you know, where 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 unionism was much stronger, where where people had a certain sense of entitlement, entitlement to leisure. Right. Mm -hmm. What uh, does that say, though, Daniel, if we're in a moment and, and, I, and I pose this question to everybody and I'd love to get your response to Sa and people uh, watching in the chat. What does that say when we're in this constant rise and grind moment where if you're not working hard if you're not spending all of your time working um you're just not doing enough and that's why you're not truly quote unquote successful and the only way you can have this life of leisure is if you're extremely well off that's a good question i mean i think you know, even in the 50s, whether they were like pro progressive liberals or socialists, there was a notion of a better future, right? Today, the era of neoliberalism, you know, of course, like people's material conditions, certain sections of society, their material conditions have improved. Uh, similarly, like pretending that, you know, racial inequality uh, it, it today is the same as it was like when there was literal, you know, institutional white supremacy embedded in the law is ridiculous. But it seems that our political imagination has been utterly decimated. Like we cannot like imagine a future. I mean, what is it that uh, it's easier to uh, the world? imagine the end of the world than, 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 than like surpassing capitalism in that sense, you know, in that sense, you know, the, the slaves in Haiti had more free, more like mental freedom than we had because they actually could imagine a better future and they could chart out a concrete political path towards mm. it. Uh, whereas we, 
you know, we're fatter, you know, well, except Jason. <laughs> Jason, Jason is firm. It's because I rise and grind, Gene. Because he, he rises. But we, 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 our material, uh, our feather bed is softer, but our mentality is, uh, you know, completely enslaved to the system. Whereas, you know, even in the 50s, you had communists who had a, a notion of the future and you had a utopian capitalist vision of what the future would be, which would be like the Jetsons, where you would have like all the stuff you have in the 50s, but way more automation. And the Flintstones is the same. It's just you get dinosaurs to do the things instead of the machine. <laughs> right. You get dinosaurs. Yeah, I think that speaks to what Daniel's talking about. We're in a different labor moment. I mean, even when Pascal was talking about his house, and we were teasing him in the champagne room the other night. Um, that just sounds like a, a nice middle-class house that a middle-class family would have in that era. And they don't have to be necessarily extremely rich to even afford with, these quote-unquote luxuries. Even our leisure time is turned into a freaking painful grind. Just look at video games now. Like video games are basically mm -hmm. they use all these scientific methods to mm -hmm. trick your brain into like doing extremely boring repetitive paths so they can milk you for money. Or like tabletop miniatures that I like I'm involved where they rise mm -hmm. the prices and they create this fear of missing out. So you always in an agitated state that you want to keep so even your hobbies. Well, um, you have to mod I, okay, and I think this speaks to Daniel's point, and I will shut up and take myself off the air so Tucson can speak because I'm being a man. Why do we have to monetize our fun and our hobbies? And why do we have to monetize leisure? If you like making jewelry because it makes you feel good and you just dig it, why does that have to instantly be monetized? If you like making music, why do you all of a sudden have to you know monetize it um these were leisure activities that people enjoyed but now all of a sudden there's and there's easy functions to do it but how do you enjoy anything when everything you enjoy becomes monetizable well i want to add to what gene was saying before the hobbies that are work bullet journaling. I don't know if you guys have ever come across this, but where you make your own planner yourself, you draw it, you draw pictures that go with it. You buy stickers that go with it and you plan out your life. It's you do it every month and it's work to set up and it's work to keep up and continue, but it's kind of a hobby. So the hobbies are already kind of work and you're given this idea that you're supposed to love your work. I think we've resigned ourselves to ourselves to just be working all the time. So you have to love what you do now. And then you have a combination of hobbies being the things that you like and what you do as your day job, which you're supposed to love. Um, and I think you also have pressure to be successful, rich and famous. So you, you're supposed to be successful, rich and famous doing what you love. Like this show, if I meet people on dating sites, I find it very funny. They go, well, what do you do for a living? I go, I have a podcast. And they go, no, what do you really do for a living? <laughs> and I like, I, I have a podcast. And they're like, no, no, no. Like to make money. <laughs> J Jason, Jason, what do you call mansplaining to a, when men mansplain to another man? A podcast. You, you call it a podcast. 
I thought that was rather hilarious when you wrote that. That's a pretty day. good. That's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good one. But yeah, I think we do. I think M Tucson is totally right. We we're like it's almost like we're we're told to do what we love, right? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we're like professionalizing our hobby, uh, our, our leisure time. Like if you're not doing it this way, you're not mm-hmm. doing it properly. If you don't have all the bits and bobs and the gizmos for your hobby. You're not taking your hobby seriously. seriously. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, it, 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 I, I do think there is a kind of perverse, we live in a, like, I think we like we really live in a degenerated time in terms of our imagination because the jet, like the Jetsons is a utopian picture of the future. Maybe a white supremacist utopian picture of the future, <laughs> but how? <laughs> For Daniel Tuck and for me until the next census, it's great, you know? And by the way, when I was looking for Jetson's pictures, there is way too much Jetson pornography out there. I'm like, what is going on? Damn it, anyway, Laszlo. Damn it. Witches, they steal your seed. They steal your seed. But um, but what is like look at what is what is science fiction today? It's all like the last of us, doom and gloom. Uh, you know, we don't have, we've like lost any sense of a, a utopian future and we, we cannot imagine surpassing mm. our current system. And that is a huge issue for a society because I think, you know, revolutionaries of the Enlightenment period from the Haitian Revolution to the Russian Revolution, whatever the outcome of those revolutions, the people who made those revolutions, their minds were freer than our minds are today. I like that point, Gene. I think it's um, something that folks have talked about in Marx's theory of alienation and the very complex question regarding how the neoliberal era alienates us in, in unique ways. And one of the ways that it does that is going back to our original point about emotional capitalism and affective capitalism. And the the way in which we're connected to the social media, of course, is one obvious way but um i feel like one thing we haven't mentioned is that part of the problem of the current structure of capitalism is that our definition of labor freedom is tethered to the entrepreneurial ideal which means that um that creates a market of only a few exceptional winners who are able to possess the dream entrepreneurial gig and make it work and so on. So part of the problem with the post 2008 doubling down on the gig economy uh, is Mm -hmm. the fact that, well, I mean, how many gigs can you do to, to, until you, until you land on the one that's going to be like the, the Midas touch, right? This, this goes back to the very interesting ideology. I don't know if you all are familiar with it, there's a great historian of American history called Louis Hartz. And he says that uh, the, the most effective ideology of liberal bourgeois American life is the myth of Horatio Alger, which is the myth of entrepreneurship, which was the, the myth of these novels. It's a series of novels from the Gilded Age period, which was a period similar to our own of great inequality. Uh, they tell the story of young white working class boys who uh, 
work really, really hard, exert the most grit you could imagine, and they rise up the class ladder through paternalistic charity from elites. Yeah. So uh, Hartz argues that even after FDR's New Deal, even in the Fordist period, and you could say even running up all the way to now, this ideology of altruism has remained consistent throughout. And I always felt that's a really brilliant way to sort of understand the underbelly. And yes, that altruistic thing can transfer outside of just a white only thing, in my opinion. I mean, we all have to now hustle and grind like that. But that's that's what Louise Hart says is the kind of DNA of American ideology, of what it means to be a free citizen, to be a realized entrepreneur. And I feel like socialists need a better response. Like Bernie's response on entrepreneurship wasn't adequate, in my opinion. That's why I felt like when Killer Mike went away from Sanders after Sanders lost, he started to be pro-entrepreneurship and things like this. And I feel like the left needs to think very hard where we stand and how we're going to promote entrepreneurship. Because it is, I think Hartz is right, the heart of American, yeah, I want to say ideology. I don't know if you all agree with that. But that's my question for the left. It's like, what are we going to do on the question of entrepreneurship? That's fascinating. Jason, we can't hear you. Yeah, I muted myself. Uh, I, I remember meeting Killer Mike. I mildly brought that up uh, to that very large man that I disagreed with. <clears throat> Got to get him on the show, man. Get him on the show. Probably not going to happen. <laughs> go ahead on a limb and say it's probably not going to happen. I ran into him at a festival I was working, and I do not work in that in that world anymore, so I don't have that level of access to just be able to tap people like that on the shoulder and be like, hey, come over. But um, but entrepreneurship is liberatory. There are aspects of entrepreneurship. The problem with it is that it is unevenly available and distributed and so on. And it's a limited way for us to realize our freedom in this society that's imposed on us. We have to follow those dictates, right? We got to work within these constraints, which are narrow, right? So, you know, there's much to be said about that, but I'll stop talking. But Pat Pascal, I'm sure you have something to say about entrepreneurship. No, I'm absolutely. But if, by the way, I apologize if I get cut off because of noise. I'll 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 silence myself. But I think that you can create a socialist paradigm, and I've 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 worked with. Well, I think I shared it with Gina one time. Where you have a cooperative economic model in which the means of production, i.e., all of the publicly traded com- companies and the actual resources of the nation state, are divided between the state. The population and the government and and uh, and the private owners of the corporation and what you do is that you do not start to publicly share entrepreneurial interest enterprises until they meet, reach a certain level of profit so in other words in that kind of model of a cooperative society where you say you divide all the shares of all of the means of production corporations publicly traded, privately traded, and all of the oil and natural gas resources, 33% for all members of society get a share, the government gets a third, and the private people who start to get a share. What you do then is that anyone who starts a business that doesn't make over $5 million a year can have an enterprise and be an entrepreneur. Two... Toussaint, do you have something you'd like to add? Sure. Um, 
I had some thoughts about this because I, I, I was in the entrepreneur world for a while and it is, it is a world to itself. It really, mm-hmm. really is. Um, trying to get funding, this and that, but those small business owners who stormed the Capitol, they look like they were having a great time. Uh, and they seem like they have a great time a lot. <laughs> so maybe they are the elite that become the Jetsons, you know, in that world. And, the and ones people that are just trying to sacrificed. I, I mean, yeah. in the in the article Daniel gave us to read about the Jetsons, there's there's kind of this uh, narrative that there were people that had to be sacrificed. Um, yes. To 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 nothing build. could be done. Nothing could be done. You know, the useless eaters, right? We have all these useless eaters, and I, and I think that's a reality that people probably don't really want to face, especially when we talk about things like the prison population. And I think maybe we should use this quick moment to dispel uh, one myth, which is the prison population is uh, equivalent to slave labor when only a small fraction of prisons actually have labor programs to begin with. It is literally a way to warehouse skillless poor people and in some cases the mentally ill. Well, we do have this we do have this kind of whole neo-Methuselan politics. I think the debate between, you know, accelerationists and like degrowth people is sometimes talking at cross purposes. I think they often straw man each other. uh, And I find that a little bit silly, but there is concretely a discussion of this. And this whole accelerationist debate is, you know, is a response to like, hey, the problem with the world is not overpopulation. It is the distribution of goods and services, who controls them, and other points like that. Because you will see, you know, not just people on the left, but across the entire political spectrum, uh, focus on the issue of overpopulation Mm -hmm. as being the primary reason why we're having this rapid environmental uh, degradation. And, you know, if you say overpopulation is 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 the problem, there is there are very logical ways that you can deal with yeah. uh, overpopulation. I'm not saying that everybody who says overpopulation is a project has this like nefarious plan to, you know, Thanos half the planet and get rid of them. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, but there but, is an know, idea of who will have to go. There's people who have yeah. to go. It's like if there's overpopulation, well, maybe the humane approach is let's just sterilize half the population, and the more extreme approach is to like you know, physically liquidate them. And I think fully automated co- uh, uh, communism and all these things, that's a, it's a riposte to that very frightening, that very frightening mythology that is being built up, uh, which has purchase on some sections of the left, but also, you know, has purchase within mainstream liberalism and the political right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we just want to say briefly is that part of the thing that Deleuze and Guattari and part of that kind of philosophical theory about accelerationism, especially well on both the right and the left, that they, they promoted was a certain understanding of how to accelerate certain inbuilt tendencies of capitalist productive uh, production, um, which are not necessarily reliant, by the way, on a, a big hegemonic countervailing working class labor power against against it. It's it's rather an argument that internal to capitalist production, there exists an accelerating degenerative process. The capitalism um, 
eats itself, if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Like the snake that eats itself. Right. I think that's the the part of the uh, argument that's, that's problematic from a kind of understanding of capitalism, especially there's that. And then also, of course, they have this whole business on Marx, fragment on machines, and all of these very intricate debates regarding what Marx thought about automation, right? Which he didn't say much. It was mostly up to like- Well, he Marx. didn't see automation. And, and can we use what he talked about and the limited automation that he was able to see in his time to what we are literally seeing now, where we're not getting leisure time, we're literally getting layoffs, right? We're getting Ford factories closing down, um, uh, GM factories closing down still um, after an auto bailout during the Obama term. And uh, and we're seeing all these people get turned into the the surplus army of. Uh, I think I think Jason Smith calls this Marx's absolute law, which is that ca the capitalist class would prefer to rely on surplus labor to handle uh, what could be technologically automated, precisely because when you automate it, it quantifies that labor relation. And that actually harms the bottom line. In other words, you need actual bodies of people to exploit, to do that work, surplus labor uh, for extremely low wages. That's going to fulfill the bottom line much more than a full automation, which is why automation cannot be fully expanded in capitalism, according to and, Marxists. And that's why, you know, at any point in history, a particular mode of production becomes a fatter on the productive forces because you know if you go back to the 19th century and early marxist you know discussions on capitalism you know the that there is like a uh like a a respect for how capitalism was revolutionizing uh the forces of production and creating you know creating this potentiality for socialism but ultimately it's political economy thus there's like there is uh political factors that obstruct the development of certain technologies look at you know something like solar power right you know why would electrical companies want to promote a renewable energy that will like reduce scarcity uh and thus make their product a lot cheaper why not just keep relying on fossil fuels where you can like use scarcity to hike up uh, prices and make better profits you know it's not a tech it's not a technocratic solution mm -hmm. and that's the capitalist uh, utopians their their like blind belief in technological solutions is misplaced capitalism may require at some point because of environmental degradation to do something to overcome an imminent crisis but there's no like chance of a kind of long-term planning for well, one thing I want to say is that advocates of automation and UBI, they do uh, plant the seeds of their own failure in terms of political power because they do end up, in essence, um, exacerbating the surplus dynamic, which is something I know that TIR, this podcast, has talked about a lot, which mm -hmm. is what do we think about the lumpen proletariat question? Mm -hmm. Now, I know from your conversation with Adolf Reed, there's a danger, especially when you enter into the PMC dimension. 
about talking about the lumpen proletariat in the sense that it becomes a fetish. It becomes like this, the beautiful souls, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, at the same time, post-war capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, still does produce these surplus dynamics, meaning that accounts for why labor consciousness is low, mm -hmm. right? The gig economy does produce a lumpenization. It does. Mm -hmm. It does. Rationally, it does. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. great. So what are we going to do about that? That's, I think, a super important way of which the accelerate left accelerationists didn't talk about that they didn't talk about that they didn't talk because they didn't they didn't care about building work i'm not I'm, when i say working class solidarity i don't mean just working class i also mean these sub working class like the nomad land positions you know I mean, okay danny I, I wanna ask you, danny I want to ask you this real quick and i want to ask this to everybody but especially daniel because you're bringing up a great point and i was with Catherine lou recently i got to speak at uh, uc irvine and we were talking about activism for the unhoused, especially in Southern California, because I have my disagreements with it. And she goes, there's something extremely altruistic with these people that love to help the homeless, but don't really want to help the poor. Mm. And I, yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear what you guys have to say about that. Well, all, all support to Catherine, who's, in my opinion, very important thinker of our time. Mm -hmm. uh, let me say that because uh, she and I have debated comradely ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. I mean, the whole discourse on the house needs to be needs to be critically critically assessed for for many reasons, and it's an issue of the political imagination we have available right now. A, a, a way of building a certain certain expansion of class literacy. Not just one class, right? But the kind of cultivating a sense in which um, being classed throws us into a multitude of different exploit exploitative positions and relations, which necessitate not a celebration of just the lowest uh, suffering, so which which itself is a very Christian notion. Mm -hmm. We need to we need to kind of get beyond that Christian sense that only uh, 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 the, the 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 true salt of the earth. We must prove this. This yeah. that that is not good for socialist politics. So I, I'm somebody that would say we need to kind of increase our rationalist game when we look at these issues, which is kind of goes back to the very first thing we talked about, which is liberals introduce this kind of suffering i don't want to say suffering olympics because that's what the right wing says i don't want to say that mm -hmm. but nonetheless like we need to we need to get better on this issue man right and and i agree like from what i understand what you said i agree with Catherine that i don't know some kind of expanded is, is it easier solidarity. is it is it easier to and I'm not saying I'm against these things first and foremost. Let me let me, you know, say that preface by saying that. Is it easier to pass out needles and tents? Is it easier to protest sweeps? When again, I lived in the largest encampment in the city of Oakland. I saw it go from four little tiny houses to over 200 people. Well, a couple like of points. That. A couple and of points. 
you, you know, that happens because people were just losing housing, losing housing, losing housing, losing housing. It was older people. It was disabled people. And it felt like nobody cared about preventing these well, things and being very reactive. I mean, isn't that all we've got, though? I mean, like, I, you know, I take, I think there is, like, legitimate criticism for, like, certain elements of people who get involved in, in charity work or social justice work uh, who are doing it for cynical reasons. But there is something, like virtue signaling signaling yeah. about how other people are virtue signaling is also a type of virtue signaling right <laughs> you know it's like yeah. we it's yep. it's like oh these people are all just like doing it's like well you're just you're just saying that they're virtue signaling to show that you're not like those other pmcs mm -hmm. right it's like mm -hmm. i'm not like the bad pmcs i'm the good pmc because i am self-aware i think that's a little bit of a distraction uh, of a conversation in those issues. I think the problem is that of political imagination because people want to help, right? Uh, but I think a lot of people just like, if, if you're told that's the way that you can help the best and you, you want to help, that's how you're going to help, right? Uh, you you know, people say, look, the if you're told by the experts that like, okay, handing out needles is the way to do it. I think a lot of people are like, okay, well, those people seem to know what they're doing. I'll do this because I think this is like the best way. Now, of course, People get ground up by that system like you did, Jason. You go in mm -hmm. and you get ground up by the system and you become cynical on that system, right? Because mm -hmm. you've like seen how the sausage is made. But I think a lot of people going into it, go into it like with a lot of good intentions and, and really do try and think about, is this the best way I can participate? Uh, and it's only until you have that concrete experience uh, of like how, how things are that, you know, it becomes... <laughs> But but, but I also I also got ground up because I was fodder. I was part of the fodder. There's different you know aspects sure. of the systems. There's people that are part of the fodder that they're going to ground up and throw away all the time, and then there's people that get in, make it, make figure it out, and go, okay, this is how I get my foundation money. No You're not going to get foundation money helping people that are two paychecks away from being on the street. Nobody cares. No one cares about those people. On the street, there's going to be some some foundation money for you. There's going to be some some a way that you can earn a living. I'm not saying everyone that does this is some sort of con man or not true to form. I mean, it's hard work. You have to raise money for it. But I remember having a conversation with a young lady that worked with me that, you know, she just wanted to be Oprah. She literally told me, I want to be Oprah. And this is my way to be Oprah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I realize like in my own family, sometimes I see the complexity of class in the sense that if some people rely on welfare and mm -hmm. others don't, mm -hmm. you know, you know, and the government knows this, that mm -hmm. creates a kind of internal resentment within the working class against each other. And it's very hard to transcend those resentments in my, from what I've seen. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like when we talk about the rational basis of class politics, it's also about taking on these resentments, which which the ruling class foments to keep that structure in place. So I feel like capitalism is a resentment machine that, mm. that, that, mm. that needs that in some sense. Uh, uh, 
and then on the other point regarding political imagination, my sense there is that, you know, you see this also, I just had somebody on my podcast talking about, he said that all the philosophers that are most popular by New York Times who write about climate change, he said, are you aware that most of them suggest that there is no revolution of the mode of production possible? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very uh, fatalistic. My sense of it is that we need to resurrect some hope. I don't even know if that's the right word in the possibility of revolution and, and in a non-ironic way. Otherwise, these these frameworks are going to be we're going to continue to have this fatalistic um, imagination, right, that that ultimately the kind of status quo is sunk in xyz way and the best we can do is i don't know like I mean, work, work within the ngo confines and always remain loyal to the democrats right i mean i mean that's the that's the thing isn't it anti-capitalism uh cynical anti-capitalism is perhaps the strongest prop of the existing capitalist system that exists because it is a simultaneously a recognition of the bankruptcy of the system, yet mm -hmm. also the impossibility of surpassing that system. So, so much anti-capitalism, it's what they, what the kids call cope. You, something bad happens mm -hmm. and you're like, hell, well, that's the way it is. You know, like, what did you, so it becomes a huge giant cope. And that combined with like, you know, like uh, Daniel said, we have the grind and hustle culture. Well, you know, nowadays, instead of being an exploited worker working for a corporation, you can work for an app and you know, you're not working for a taxi company. You're working for yourself. You're working for Uber. You're not working for a pimp on the street. You're getting your knockers out on uh, only fans, right? <laughs> you know, well now there's yeah. only fans because you're not, because you're an only, because you, because you're a, because you're an entrepreneur. So we, t so we're turning all these like jobs that were like previously you would like recognize your worker into being like you're now an entrepreneur and this culture pervades everywhere academia academia as academia a, as, may not have a phd, a PhD, in, PhD academia. in academia but academia is the same right like all the ivy league universities yeah. have their pet radicals that they that have nice well, offices you know and rolled and they roll those people out and boom you know like uh that there's this kind of whole performance shit so it's all well, but it's all entrepreneurship Clyde Barrow wrote a book about academia, which, because, you know, I'm no champion of entrepreneurship. And I saw the chat where I got a little bit of pushback on that. I don't mean to champion it at all. No, no, no. I'm just simply saying that the current society forces this highly constrictive um, mode of realizing one's own freedom qua labor through the entrepreneurial structure that's all i was simply pointing out of course we need to think beyond it think but but you know barrow barrow has this book where he says there's two dominant tendencies in the american university between what he calls the corporatist and the entrepreneurial and he said actually the most radical elements of modern academia modern university are actually found in entrepreneurial um uh, was a contract-based adjunct academics in some sense kind of uh, proletarianized academics because the proletarianized academics are the more entrepreneurial. They don't have a firm 
position within the university system. But politically, that actually uh, gives them a leg up because they have a, a more adversarial independence from the dominant ideology of the university. So I felt like that was a good example that Barrow, and I know Barrow has been on this show before, mm -hmm. of pointing out that entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is complex. It's a, bit, it's a bit complex. Not to mention the fact that if you do want to start something on the left today, start a conversation, start a podcast, unfortunately, you got to follow that entrepreneurial route yes. with all of its all of its problems. You yes. do, you do. So. I hope hopefully Pascal's construction is. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, and with that said, you could buy TIR merch from <laughs> Tucson. You want to read this super chat, Tucson? And uh, sure, yeah, wrapping up. We have a super chat from Prairie Fire Kowalski. Hopefully, he's still in the audience. Um, why are we trying to make machines more like emotional humans? And why have we been trying to make workers more like emotionless machines? Are we neoliberalizing the human condition for no reason? Hmm. Interesting. Pascal? Heavy. And when doing, because we don't believe there's anything outside of neoliberalism as a model. We're so used to it that we've normalized it. It's like, hey, private-public partnership. That sounds great. You know? It's like, yeah, why can't we have a, you know, charter hospital? That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> charter hospital. <laughs> I mean, in, in thinking about this Jetsons future as a dystopian one and not um, the goal in which we wish to achieve with flying cars and sentient maids, um, in the end, you know, as we as we have to wrap up, um, what is there a usefulness, not just for the left, but in general? for accelerationist thought and i will start off with dr daniel Tuck. yes there is because it it is getting us to think and this is intrinsically inherently valuable um so accelerationism comes from a kind of philosophical impetus that's good that's positive um it's prescriptions I think have already been shown as we've sort of tried to intimate here to be limited. Um, but, but nonetheless, they, they've started a conversation. And the other thing about left accelerationism to its credit is that it's ambitious. It's ambitious. Um, it's talking about the right things. It's raising the right questions, right? So I don't wanna come across as sort of too strong against them. Um, because I think another thing is this conversation has shown to me is that this comes down to political imagination. This comes mm. down to, um, what is it? Tina, Tina, there is, there no, is alternative. no alternative. There is no alternative. And Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, even though he was anarchist at times, and I have my reservations with the anarchism, no offense, he believed in this notion of impossible revolutions. So, which I think is a very important thing that this conversation is hit on, which is in a non-ironic sense, we need to be on the side of a possible revolution. So 
I would, that would be what I would say to that, Jay. Okay. Pascal Robert, what say you? What's the question? Do you think there is validity in accelerationism? I think uh, it's, I, I think it can have a heuristic purpose. In other words, use it if you have to when the circumstances show that it has value, but it shouldn't always be taken as a course of action. Okay. And in closing, Mean Jean Bajlan with his hair down. You got yourself. Can't hear you, Jean. You muted yourself. I mean, sure. I mean, like, I guess it can be useful to give to give a vision of a future that is not like a doomed future, uh, uh, as it's not a post-apocalyptic hell. Um, yeah, why not? I just think like the schemata that have been offered by authors like Vastani are just a little bit naive. But in general, I much prefer that to the kind of like anarcho-primitive uh, nonsense where overpopulation is the problem. Uh, I think wishing and hoping for a better future where technology is harnessed, not just to automize jobs or to discipline and control labor or to read your thoughts or what have you, but to actually you know, help with work, I think that would be great. That would be nice. I would like to live in the Star Trek future. Where they have carpets in spaceships, because that's not when you know you can go to space. Is when they have carpets. Yeah, Sarah. Sarah said to me, I said, said, Sarah, would you like to go into space? She goes, I only want to go into space when they have a carpet in the spaceship. Because if they have a carpet in the spaceship, it means it's like totally safe. If you're like, (laughs) if if your spaceship, if your spaceship looks like a submarine, I don't know about that. But if it's got carpets and like. You know, lazy boy chess. That's that's when you know she it's makes good. That's a good go. point. That's right. Point. Residential. Yeah, she yeah. makes a good point. She spent some time at Tomorrowland. She knows. Yeah. Toussaint, do you have anything you'd like to add to this discussion about accelerationism? Since this is your show, you suggested the Jetsons, which then had me hit up Tut on Twitter to get the show done. You this is actually Tut show. <laughs> it's actually touch. He produced that? it. We haven't seen you. We haven't seen you. Could have been your face. It didn't have to be mine. It would have been better. <laughs> Tucson, so Tucson, you better have some I, closing words. I don't like. I do. I don't like accelerationism as a direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be good as a you know, as Jordan Peterson's would say, like a thought exercise, or Ben Shapiro would say that. Um, it could definitely help us to expand our imagination about what could be possible, what would be negative. And I think uh, it could be used as a maybe short-term strategy or a tactic um, in certain situations. Um, I do want to add, uh, in the episode of the Jin's High Tech Wreck, um, so sort of on a happier note, a computer malfunction during a dem- during a demonstration causes Mr. Spacely to fire George, but when the computer is repaired, it refuses to work until George is rehired. So there's a, also a potential future for us there, and I would also like to say, that's right. We we could have solidarity with AI and computers, um, and I would also like to say, Daniel Tut, this could be your next zero book. Ooh, 
we'd probably want to like get right in on sublation, but okay, you know. Or sublation book, yes. I mean, zero. Or I could, I could, but uh, you know, I could, I could mediate because I've been canceled both by sublation and zero books. Okay. So I'm, I, I, I'm, I have equidistance between both sides to mediate peace. We actually have a zero books author coming on at the end of uh, the end of uh, March to talk about his his book that he wrote about uh, horror movies at the end of the Soviet Union. Hmm. Oh, I mean, you know, you know me and pop culture. I, uh, I am. Is that going to be a pop life? Is that going to be a no, pop life? It's going to be oh, a TIR show. Oh, TIR show. Yeah, it's no. going to be an interesting, interesting show. I this me and this young man talked and i'm actually really excited we got the book and i've been too lazy to send it to you guys so that is a, a jason oops that happens from time to time here a jason production oops but check your emails it will be coming probably today i have to watch a movie right now because i'm about to talk with ben burgess and to ray reed about the movie nice. cabin in the woods where we kind of talk about the movie and then we just tease Ben uh, and do impersonations of his racist father. <laughs> but it's not, it's not real because his dad isn't really that mean. But that'll be coming. I think Ben's going to live stream that. So if he does, it'll be in a couple hours. We'll be doing that. And uh, also, been having a lot of fun on Twitter course not talking about politics but making the people's playlists of your favorite hair metal songs and i am shocked how many people have jumped into the conversation it has been a lot of fun and restored a little bit of my faith in humanity on the internet in closing we'll see you guys tuesday is that right who was our guest tuesday tucson Oh, dude, come on, man. Thought quiz. We have, we have an Islamic author coming on who wrote a book called Green Dean. Did you just make that up? No, he didn't. <laughs> because unlike other people on this show, I don't have a memory like a sieve. <laughs> I, I, I blame COVID. Um, his name is Ibrahim Abdullah. Brain fog. Brain fog. Brain fog. No, she's just, um, she's I blame just... this. <laughs> that is not the author. <laughs> <laughs> that is not the author. So do you have to check everybody's racial validity from now on? I checked his. He's good. Well, 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 with men, I have a new plan. We'll call it the PEPA test. Where we'll, we'll check if they've been circumcised to see if they're Muslim. Interesting. That's, you know, interesting. Good one. You know, Zal, Zal last night uh, came up to me and we were looking at pictures of him as a kid. And there's one of him in the bath and he just looks at me and he goes, I'm a baby and I have a big old peeper. I'm like, okay, <laughs> son. <laughs> like, I have a big old peeper. Yeah. I was like, okay, son, that's uh, an interesting <laughs> thing. So that's his new thing now. He has a big old peeper. I'm, I'm getting text from Ben Burgess who's saying, hey, you got to watch Cabin in the Woods. So, <laughs> okay. thank you guys. All right, y'all. Thanks for, for joining us, Daniel. Thanks thank so you. much, Always Daniel. Pleasure. I'm yeah. glad I was able to be on this one with you. We're gonna do more. Uh, thank you for hooking me up with Billy anyway, because I'll be on Billy's show Monday. 
Oh, cool. So thank you guys for hanging with us today. Thank you for all the super chatters. Again, if you want to be a part of the, this is the free show. If you like what we do here at TR, want to see this free show, keep going, then show your support with Patreon, show your support with merch, show your support with a super chat. And we are out. <laughs>